This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Monday, January 15th. Extreme cold nearly tips Alberta into a blackout. The Premier says it's proof renewables aren't reliable. Just ahead, a reality check from an energy economist. And 100 days of war between Israel and Hamas. Is a wider-scale conflict becoming inevitable? A Middle East analyst joins me. A number of emergency alerts sounded off across Alberta over the last few days. Facing extremely low temperatures, the province warned people four different times to limit their electricity use or face rotating power outages. In response, Premier Daniel Smith took this shot at the federal government and its plan to make the power grid net zero by 2035, saying, right now, wind is generating almost no power. When renewables are unreliable, as they are now, natural gas plants must increase capacity keep Albertans warm and safe. The federal Liberals, though, are calling that a petty, untrue, and partisan attack. I'm joined now by Andrew Leach. He's a professor of energy, environmental economics, and law at the University of Alberta. Andrew Leach, it's good to speak with you. Thanks for having me. When people think of Alberta, they think of an energy powerhouse. So, so how did the power grid in the province get to the point where it generated emergency alerts? I think a bunch of uh, events all at the same time. The coolest weekend in 40 or 50 years for most of the province, a couple of plant outages, uh, a little bit of a shortfall on imports because BC was looking at demands from both us and from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, So a lot of things happening all at once in a growing province and just a couple of weeks short of having some new generating facilities online as well. So Bunch of things all at the same time, all of the wrong things at the wrong time. So, so what does this tell us regarding Alberta's uh, capacity to, to account for these extreme changes of weather and to deal with future cold snaps like this one? Well, I think that the answer gets very different next week, once you have, or next month, sorry, once we have uh, the Cascade Generating Facility online. So had that been online on you know, Thursday or Thursday or Wednesday, uh, this would be a non-issue. It would have been a story of resilience as opposed to a story to record electricity demand as opposed to one of emergency response. So I think the build-out is in the system. It was just a little bit slower getting here than maybe would have been, than obviously would have been optimal. Uh, and I think you'll see, you know, more battery storage, more other uh, changes in place, and maybe a different conversation now about uh, inner ties to places further south, maybe further east, et cetera, to uh, give us more resilience. You, you've seen some of the political reaction to this uh, from, from the premiers of Alberta and Saskatchewan, uh, you know, attacking sort of the, the push for renewables with Scott Moe saying that it's Saskatchewan natural gas and coal-fired facilities that are helping Alberta through this patch, and, and this, these are the things the feds want them to shut down. What did you make of the, uh, the political conversation around what happened in Alberta the weekend? Well, certainly Saskatchewan did uh, move 150 megawatts across the uh, the tie line into Alberta at, at the peak, so out of 11,500 megawatts. But that was the difference for us probably that, that kept us away from some blackouts here. So it makes a difference. They were able to do that, as you say, because they have for enough firm generation to supply their own needs and to do some excess to us. There were periods through the weekend where we also exported to them. So I don't think it was as clear cut as that. But, you know, you are seeing, for example, Premier Smith talk about what happened on in particular Friday when we had a really low wind event, of course, uh, no uh, solar generation. And I think it's it's right of her to, to point that out. 
I think the other thing that we do want to remember is that, uh, you know, we are seeing our electricity systems adapt in a number of ways, coal phase out to natural gas, adoption of renewables, addition of batteries, that this is a little bit of a period of transition here and in a lot of other places. So it is going to be a little bit of a bumpy road. I don't think it sends the message that maybe Premier Smith will will take or Premier Mo will take that uh, this means that renewables don't have a purpose. I, I think they do. I think you just have to make sure that you understand what they do and what they don't. There's nobody who should have been expecting the sun to be shining at 7 p.m. on a January night in Edmonton. And if you were expecting that and looking at solar and saying, wow, it might really come through this time, I, I think you were kidding yourself to begin with. So you don't need to be scolded after the fact. Uh, the grid operator knew that solar wasn't going to be there. They knew the wind wasn't going to be there this week when it got really cold. And uh, I think we just need to have that frame of reference all the way along that we need to build a system that has capacity when we need it. And then that can come through gas. It can come with gas with CCS. It can come with intertides and import capabilities. It can come with batteries, uh, but it does have to come somewhere. Well, you say capacity when we need it. Alberta has yeah. a, a, an energy system or a grid that, that's kind of unique to Canada, an energy-only uh, system where you, you pay only for the energy you have. You don't pay producers to have capacity there almost as insurance for days like this. How much of what we yeah. saw this weekend is a result of this more free market approach rather than a, a, a more stable and perhaps more expensive environment like we see in other provinces? I think what you see was, you know, the, the grid operator would have maybe a couple of years ago been faced with the question of, are we going to be tight enough that it's worth it for us to procure generation, to go out and, and contract for generation? And they would have looked ahead and said, no, with the projects that are under construction, the market is going to meet the needs of the system. And it, it turns out they were, I guess, right, but barely right. And uh, so, you know, that the energy only market worked. It was just it was maybe a little riskier than, than we wanted it to be. I think as we go forward and we see, you know, we saw a nuclear uh, discussion today. I think we're seeing a lot of discussion about um, the ability for some of those firm generation sources to compete when in many hours of the year, it's cheap renewables, cheap solar, cheap wind that is, is dominating the market. And I think we do have to have, and our government is leading right now, a conversation on what changes in market structure we need to accommodate uh, the emerging new technologies and the fact that, you know, our electricity system is changing, our climate change goals are changing, the government of Alberta has a 2050 net zero goal that the Premier tells us about all the time. Uh, and in order to meet those goals, we're going to probably need a different uh, market structure, or at least some changes to our existing market structure to make it more worthwhile to build batteries, to build, imp to bring imports into the province, et cetera, and to allow export from the province when we uh, when we are excess generators as well. So, so just as a final point, beyond the anxiety and the alerts and, and the urges to conserve over the weekend, uh, this is going to feed into that larger political conversation, right, that, that is going on where Daniel Smith is fighting with Stephen Gilboa and Prime Minister Trudeau about the 2035 clean grid technologies, and there's a big disagreement there between uh, with Saskatchewan as well. How do you think events like this sort of feed into that bigger political conversation in Alberta, which is at odds with the feds on this energy policy? Well, I, I hope they feed in really to Ottawa to say, you know, what matters in an electricity market is that ability to meet demand at every point in time and that you can have a week or a four-day period that doesn't look like 
anything that you have in your models. And, and in Alberta right now, I think that's true for us as well. And we're probably sitting back and saying, you know, we're lucky in a way that this cold snap was Thursday, windy day, then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, low electricity demand, and then Monday, a windy day. If we would have had the Friday weather pattern and, and temperature and wind in the middle of the week, we might have been in a lot of trouble. Actually, we almost certainly would have been in a lot of trouble. So we're really close to a bad event and probably one that wasn't accounted for in most people's models. And I think the message through to Ottawa and uh, to our province as well is, you know, it's those extreme events or those, um, you know, not quite black swan, but uh, things that that happen once every couple of years that we need to be prepared for. And the fact that, you know, we weren't there on the weekend, I think has to give the, the federal government pause on the flexibility in the clean electricity regulation to allow the provinces to maintain a, a reliable system. And that, so that you don't end up in a situation where, um, you know, not quite the same as what we see in Saskatchewan right now, but where the choice is going to be on the utility operator to turn something on and violate federal law or turn something off and, and cause a blackout. And, and we don't ever want to be in that situation. We have a decent planning horizon, but it's going to take uh, take a lot of work to, to get to either the federal government's goal or the provinces in the case of, of Premier Smith, the 2050 net zero goal. Same problems, same challenges. Andrew Leach at the University of Alberta. We always appreciate the time. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Donald Trump is out of the courtroom and on the campaign trail for the first presidential nomination contest of this election cycle. Republicans in Iowa are voting for their preferred candidate, and polling suggests Trump is a clear frontrunner. Here are some of the final messages to voters. You can't sit home. If you're sick as a dog, you say, darling, I've got to back Even if you vote and then pass away, it's worth it, remember? Speak from the heart. Speak about America. Speak about where we want to take our country. And speak about the fact that we can't have a president Kamala Harris. We need a president who's going to go in there and going to actually get all this stuff done and deliver big victories for the American people. And I'm the guy that can do that. I'd rather speak the truth and lose this election than to win by playing some fake game of political snakes and ladders. The CBC's Katie Simpson is in Des Moines, Iowa, and she joins us now. Uh, so, Katie, tell us why this is so important. Why does Ottawa matter so much? Iowa matters because Iowa is first. When it comes to the political calendar, this is the first contest and it allows whichever candidate that comes out of here with a win to build the narrative that they are the front runner, that they are the contestant to beat. And Donald Trump is hoping that all of the polls in this state are right. The last poll, which was released on Saturday evening, had Donald Trump with 48% support, which is more than double his closest competitor, former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, who's sitting in second with about 20% support. Um, Donald Trump is concerned that some of his voters might be complacent because he has such a big lead and because the weather has been so bad here in Iowa, he's worried that the turnout might not be as strong as he is hoping and he wants to use this exercise, this Iowa caucuses, he wants to use this as sort of a, a 
a moment to point to how much he can win by. So it's not necessarily that he's looking for a win. That is what's widely expected here. It's by the margin of what he is able to win this contest by. That is what a lot of people here are looking for. The second campaign with momentum right now is the campaign of Nikki Haley. She's been slowly growing in the polls and they're hoping for a strong second place finish heading into the next contest in this political calendar. That is New Hampshire. Now, in New Hampshire, there are some polls that suggest that Nikki Haley is within striking distance of Donald Trump, but it still remains an overall uphill battle for anyone but Trump throughout this entire nomination process. And then, of course, we need to mention Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. If he has a very difficult night, there could be some very difficult questions he needs to answer, including whether there's even a viable path for him to the White House. Katie, as you say, all the polls would suggest that Donald Trump has a, has a pretty big lead and should get a pretty big victory tonight. But, but what are you hearing about this race as, as you travel across the state? David, one thing that's kind of different uh, during this sort of uh, deployment that we've had is that I've actually had a lot of trouble talking to Americans, trying to get mm. them to share their political opinions with us, which as a Canadian reporter isn't something that uh, I've necessarily experienced out on the campaign trail. I spoke with one gentleman today who said he's afraid that he's going to express his opinion and that someone's going to, quote, get him. Um, he's very concerned about what the consequences will be for expressing a political opinion. I also found that some of the support for Donald Trump in some of our travels is softer than I was expecting uh, because of the weather our CBC News crew actually got stranded in southern Iowa for three days. We were sort of locked down in this small community, a town of about 9,000 people called Mount Pleasant. It is traditionally Trump country. Donald Trump won that ca- the county where it's located uh, with 65% of the vote back in 2020. And when we went around chatting to people, the support was, it was there. They'll support him if he's the nominee. But the minds hadn't necessarily been made up. And the support that we've seen that has been so strong, and we see those very dedicated Trump supporters. We didn't necessarily find that out in our travels. Uh, one other person we were able to connect with uh, during our travels here around the state was earlier today, we actually caught up with Asa Hutchinson, who is the former governor of Arkansas. He's a long shot candidate. He's not going to win, um, <laughs> but he is still out here campaigning, and he is one of the last anti-Trump critics that is a part of this ongoing uh, Republican nomination race. And he wanted to send a message to Canadians saying, listen, this process is sloppy. That's what he says. Sometimes it gets a, bit, a little bit sloppy, but we trust the voters will get there. But he is concerned what could happen if there is a second Donald Trump presidency. There is a risk. There is a great risk, and that's why I'm sounding the alarm. Uh, and, uh, you know, our democracy is resilient and can survive world wars. Uh, we can survive poor leaders in the past. But why tempt us? Uh, why challenge us? Let's have someone that can bring us together. He is concerned by the things that Donald Trump himself has said. He's worried that he's going to lean into autocratic tendencies, that he's going to ignore the norms of democracy, democratic institutions, and is deeply concerned about the future of the United States if there is another Trump presidency, which is something we've heard very strongly from the anti-Trump wing of the Republican Party. But tonight, Donald Trump and his team are likely bracing or getting excited, not bracing, getting excited for what could be a very big victory here in Iowa.
Security in the Middle East is teetering. The Iranian-backed Houthis, seemingly unfazed by U.S. and U.K. air attacks on their assets, are vowing to continue to attack ships off Yemen's coast. Today, they struck a U.S.-owned container ship in the Gulf of Aden with a ballistic missile. The attack caused a fire on board the vessel, but the damage was limited and caused no injuries. Iran is accusing the U.S. of hypocrisy, arguing the U.S. can't stand with Israel and its war in Gaza, while simultaneously calling for other actors in the region to exercise restraint. Now, that war in Gaza has now hit the 100-day mark. Israeli forces continue to operate inside the enclave, and more than 24,000 Palestinians have been killed so far, according to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Authority, while at least 132 Israeli hostages remain in captivity in Gaza. Aaron David Miller is a senior fellow at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and he previously served as a U.S. State Department official working on Middle East policy and the Arab-Israel peace process. David Aaron Miller, it's good to see you again. My dear, thanks for having me. Sorry, I said that backwards. All right, we're now 100 days uh, into this war. Uh, the death toll on the Palestinian side continues to mount. Israeli hostages remain held captive. What, what's your assessment of this war as it stands now? I mean, I think the Israelis have three goals for themselves to uh, degrade or destroy, eradicate Hamas's military infrastructure above and below ground, kill its senior leaders, and free the remaining hostages. 20 of the 136, by the way, David, Israelis believe uh, were either killed in the uh, October 7th terror rampage, their bodies taken back into Gaza, or died in captivity. In fact, Hamas announced today that two Israelis, or the three videos they released yesterday, had, had died in Israeli airstrikes. The government of Israel, of course, is disputing that. Um, right now, I don't see any way out, largely because the um, the goals of the two, two main combatants, Israel and Hamas, are, are mutually uh, incompatible. The Israelis want to kill the senior leadership and prevent another October 7th. Hamas has vowed that there, there will be repeated October 7th. And Hamas's objective, I think, is to survive, uh, to essentially be able to launch rockets uh, the day after, or the day before, excuse me, before any putative ceasefire um, agreement was reached. So right now, I, I see no no end to this. Uh, the suffering uh, part of the Palestinian people is incalculable. The humanitarian catastrophe is not only looming, it's there. They're using the F word in terms of famine, malnutrition, mm. diseases spreading, the absence of basic necessities. Uh it's a parade of horrors. I, I wonder, uh, sir, there are reports of tension in Israel's war cabinet about how aggressive the military approach should be from now on to defeat Hamas, but also to release the hostages. We've seen some reporting in, in the major uh, Israeli papers. What do you make of where the Israeli war cabinet is reportedly at, where, where they're at right now? First of all, you've got two governments in Israel. You have the old government, the most extremist in Israel's history, uh, presided over Benjamin Netanyahu, and you have the war cabinet, which brings Benny Gantz and his national uh, party into the cabinet, uh, which gives Netanyahu uh, an added buffer. You need 61 seats in order to govern, uh, 61 seats in the Israeli Knesset or parliament. I think Benny Gantz and others are uh, much more interested and more focused on some sort of uh, negotiation that would bring the hostages home. And far more folks than Mr. Netanyahu, who I, I think has conflated his own personal and uh, political and legal travails. Remember, he's on trial for bribery, fraud, and breach of trust in a Jerusalem district court. He's due to testify, I believe, next month. That trial is now three years old. 
Mr. Netanyahu needs to stay in power in order to beat his indictment, water it down or obviate it completely. So in many respects, a long war is something I think that he certainly wouldn't shy away from. And that's part of the problem uh, on the Israeli side. It's just uh, there's no mechanism right now uh, to remove the Israeli prime minister. And the public is more or less unified because the blood is up because of what happened on October 7th, more or less unified uh, behind the current government, the war cabinet, that is. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, you, you said earlier, no, you see no way out. But you know, there are these negotiations and there's reporting that, that suggests that Hamas and Israel are, are at, very far apart on any new deal. Hamas wants to use any deal to end all the fighting in Gaza, which we talked about the tensions in the, in the war cabinet there. Israel at this point, or what we're told, is only interested in sort of a renewal of the hostage release sort of program we saw earlier uh, in, in this conflict. Do you think we could see something like that anytime soon? renewed on this? Hard to imagine right now uh, anything more than a humanitarian a humanitarian pause. There was one for a week, as you recall, mm-hmm. last month, which uh, ended up trading 100 Palestinians for 30 or 40. Well, actually, there were 100 plus Israeli hostages ultimately released during that week period. Um, and, and many more Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. I think you could see another humanitarian pause. There are reports that uh, Hamas has agreed to provide um, uh, medical treatment or medicines to those Israelis who are now in their 100th day of captivity. I'm not sure you're going to get any more than that. In large part, as as I've argued before, I just think the goals of the current Israeli government and the senior Hamas leadership ensconced in tunnels somewhere in southern Gaza are simply incompatible right now. So where does this go then next? Because, you know, Israel has said it's going to scale back sort of the intensity of its military operations in Gaza as, as reservists need to be released back into civilian life for various reasons. And also there's this pressure to, to, to reduce uh, the, the civilian toll. Do we just get a lower grade continuation of the same thing where deaths on both sides keep piling up but at a slower rate? I mean, under the best of circumstances... Right now, over the next month or so, you could see a significant downshift, downscaling of, his, of the more kinetic, intensive um, ground campaign the Israelis are waging, less emphasis on artillery and airstrikes, which are doing irreparable harm, not willfully or intentionally, but I think the Israeli rules of engagement have clearly been broadened considerably. Um, you could see that and a surge, because that's what's needed, of humanitarian assistance into Gaza because you get a reduced level of fighting, reduced level of Palestinian deaths and casualties, which would allow UN and other uh, and, uh, non-government organizational uh, aid workers in, and perhaps uh, a trade, another trade, mm. uh, for an extended period of time uh, for the remaining civilians, the 40 or so women, uh, and uh, non-Israeli Defense Forces males uh, in exchange, again, for an asymmetrical tr- trade, probably three or four times the number of Palestinian prisoners released in exchange for 40 Israeli hostages. Uh, that's the best, frankly, that I could foresee, uh, let's say, by the end of February. But let's be clear. Uh, the Israelis will be operating in Gaza uh, at some level, probably for months to come. And I think we have to reduce our expectations um, and understand that uh, 2024 is going to be the year of Gaza. Hopefully, 
you can see a surge of humanitarian assistance. I just can't get my mind around how you maneuver through all of this with um, the Israelis still trying to eliminate the Hamas leadership and destroy its military capacity and how you deal with 136 hostages, both dead and alive, dead or alive, that are still being held by Hamas 100 days, 101 days now uh, into this conflict. It's something that's impossible, frankly, David, to predict. I, I want to thank you for your time, sir. Aaron David Miller. I screwed that up earlier and said Thanks it back. I apologize happy, for that. Happy New Year. You too, sir. Thanks happy so much. That's Aaron David Miller, thank senior you. fellow at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Albertans cut way back on power usage this weekend to keep the heat on after the province's grid operator issued an energy alert during an extreme cold spell. What was the message to Ottawa coming out of the weekend's close call? The fact that you know we weren't there on the weekend, I think, has to give the, the federal government pause on the flexibility in the clean electricity regulation where the choice is going to be on the utility operator to turn something on and violate federal law or turn something off and, and cause a blackout. And, and we don't ever want to be in that situation. Alberta Premier Daniel Smith took to social media, making the case for fossil fuel energy sources. When renewables are unreliable as they are now, natural gas plants must increase capacity to keep Albertans warm and safe. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe also took a shot at the federal government's clean grid regulations when his province sent power to support Alberta, noting that power will be coming from natural gas and coal-fired plants, the ones the Trudeau government is telling us to shut down, parentheses, which we won't. A spokesperson for Federal Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo responded to Moe's comment, writing, to say we want to shut down plants is simply not the case. The regulations would never put the province in a situation where they do not have reliable electricity because of proposed provisions allow fossil fuel burning plants to run without carbon capture technologies during peak usage or in situations of emergency. Okay, a lot of back and forth there. Let's bring in the power panel on this. Brad Levine is with Council Public Affairs. Gary Keller is a Vice President at Strategy Corp. And here with me in Ottawa, Vanda Nakater is a political consultant and a former advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Rob Russo is the former CBC Parliamentary Bureau Chief, now writing for The Economist. Uh, Rob, let's start with you. Um, the Premier's jumped on this pretty quick, you know, using uh, the energy alerts, the emergency alerts that situation in Alberta sort of make a political point when in fact, you know, this is stuff that's 11 years down the road, these energy regulations. Is it fair for them to create? What do you make of this? I think we can draw a few conclusions. Number one, uh, the road to the energy transition that is happening around the world is going to be a bumpy one. And this is uh, outlined one of the bigger speed bumps. The other thing that it, it, I think we can, we can draw from this is that in Canada, we help each other out. It was great mm -hmm. to see Saskatchewan help out Alberta. Uh, and our, the way our uh, electricity grid is connected now, I think of Texas a few years ago where that was impossible. There, there was, weren't connections. And the third thing that we can draw from this is uh, politicians are going to politic no matter what. Um, I, was, uh, I, I was interested to, to see um, everybody kind of scurrying away from, from uh, hardline positions, except for Scott Moe, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, but but it's, I, I think uh, Andrew Leach is absolutely uh, correct. The sun doesn't shine very much uh, in Alberta in January. Uh, it doesn't shine at all for uh, 12, 14 hours a day. We're going to have to make provisions for that. People are going to be flexible. But to say this is a binary choice between fossil fuels, coal in particular, and renewable energy, I think, is to, is to make it a, f a false binary choice. And I would remind Premier Mo that it was Stephen Harper, the conservative, who outlawed 
further uh, coal-fired plants uh, in, in the country. And because he knew that if you're going to have any kind of environmental strategy, you couldn't be in with China and India and other countries that are building new right. coal-fired plants all the time. Yeah, Vandana, it's not a binary choice, but increasingly the conversation around this in times of high stress and high uncertainty, like a cold snap, like the one we saw in Alberta over the weekend, it does get kind of reductive to that. And as Andrew Leach laid out at the top of the show, it's way more complicated than that. And a week from now or two weeks from now with new capacity online, this whole thing might have been avoided. Yeah, I think actually it's not about picking between fossil fuels and renewable energy. It's about building and diversifying what you have for energy. And I'll take a look at um, Ontario when I used to work at Queen's Park. You know, they phased out coal and obviously different province, different environment. But you have uh, you have nuclear, you have wind, you have solar, you have biomass. There's so many options there. And removing coal actually removes the equivalent of 7 million cars off the road, mm-hmm. right? So there's no denying where we have to go with it. I think um, what Daniel Smith is doing is that saying that the federal government is saying you can't you can't build anymore, but what they're saying is not getting rid of the natural gas plants. In fact, they've said that, you know, add some carbon capture technology and they can stay for another 20 years because they never want it to be unreliable. But, you know, when the grid came back online, it was in part due to like wind and solar coming back. So I think it's about talking about how all these energies come together. And that's part of the transition overall. It's not a binary concept. Yeah, I think unabated gas can continue until about 2045 even, you know, to to allow time for carbon capture to come in. And they've wanted 2050. So that's pretty close. Yeah, they're, they're five years apart, but it seems like a, a, an insurmountable gap there. Uh, Gary, uh, you, you worked in the Harper government. Um, you know, w- when we hear about the energy challenges in, in Alberta, it's often blaming Stephen Gobeau and Justin Trudeau for, for coal being phased out early, or Rachel Notley. Uh, they never really mentioned that the Harper government put in a lot of the regulations that, that led to the, uh, the, the, sh- the, the, the phase out of some of these coal facilities. Well, no matter what side of the equation you're on, energy and energy politics is an inherently a political issue. Uh, we've seen that, uh, you know, since day one of this current federal government, and we've seen uh, provincial leaders also try to take advantage of that. Look, in, in Alberta this weekend, there's no doubt that this emergency situation, you're going to have uh, premiers and leaders react, first of all, to trying to reduce the pressure on the grid, which is what I think the Alberta government rightly did by putting out the, the emergency alert. Um, but secondly, then there's sort of the the after the fact when people start to sort of pile on. And uh, to the points that have been made here before, the, the solution down the road is going to be a mix of energy. Natural gas is going to play a major role, especially in the prairie provinces. Unlike Ontario, uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and, and other prairie provinces don't rely on, on nuclear power, and that was a major reason why Ontario was able to go uh, off of coal. Um, but interestingly, today we hear uh, one company talking about building a uh, small modular nuclear reactor to provide that into the mix for Alberta. So. Wherever you stand on this, this is inherently a, a political issue, and it's going to remain uh, remain that way. Uh, and Scott Moe was uh, more than happy to pile on as he's made his crusade. Uh, Alberta has already phased out its coal. Saskatchewan hasn't. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think both in Alberta and Saskatchewan, obviously when you have a situation like this and it's minus 50 and people just want to keep their houses warm, you know, leaders are going to say, look, we're going to do everything that it takes to keep the power on. Uh, but the discussion is going to continue for sure, because I think everybody wants to have their say on this. Well, well Brad, as Gary says, it's inherently political. And, and Randy Boissonneau is the only cabinet minister. The cabinet minister in Alberta, I guess he's got to deal with pushback against Scott Moe as well. He he tweeted out calling the, uh, he called Premier Moe's tweet a petty, untrue and partisan attack. And in fact, 
he blamed provincial underinvestment in the grid for what happened uh, uh, over the weekend. Uh, I mean, how do you think people are worried about being able to keep their lights on and their heat going in, in an extreme weather situation or, or viewing the way the politicians are at each other on this? Yeah, probably not well because, I mean, first of all, when the first alert went out, uh, Albertans responded uh, quite, you know, you know, quite uh, responsibly by immediately cutting their usage. They were saying, well, I'm going to cut my usage so that my neighbors don't lose all of their electricity. I, I think that that's uh, noteworthy uh, and, and important to note that when, when called upon, Albertans uh, sacrificed so that uh, their, their neighbors uh, wouldn't uh, experience rolling blackouts. As for the politics, uh, and here's the thing, I, I think this is right in Daniel Smith and Scott Moe's, uh, never let a crisis pass without ensuring that people, whether rightly or wrongly, blame Ottawa for some strange reason. Uh, and this is, this is the case. That is, it is not the case that, that Ottawa is responsible for, uh, you know, and, uh, you know I'll, take, I'll, take my, I'll, I'll take some good, good runs at Trudeau and the Liberals. Uh, they're not my first choice by any stretch. But never let a crisis pass without making sure that you can blame uh, Ottawa. What, what, what does that do? Well, it, first of all, it, 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 it biases the conversation because it's not the case that Ottawa is responsible for, uh, uh, for these alerts. It is also not the case that Ottawa is forcing Alberta to only use renewables right now. And the fact that there's no wind, like the, like the, the audio uh, uh, you know, on the intro uh, to the panel today, you know, there's no wind today. Therefore, Trudeau is, is taking away my ability to heat my home and keep my family safe. That is just not the case. Uh, energy, poli energy policy is inherently political. But at the end of the day, you know, it's, I think I find it a little shallow uh, by some conservative uh, premiers in the Prairie Provinces uh, who, who knee-jerk reaction, let's use the crisis to make sure that we take another knock uh, out of Ottawa instead of coming together uh, and figuring out what the mess is. And again, all but four years of the last 50, uh, conservatives have been overseeing the electrical grid in Alberta. So if anybody wants to point fingers, uh, I would look inward in Alberta. Rob, they also have a, you know, a different system, an energy-only market uh, you know, in Alberta where you kind of don't have reserve power supplies that you can tap into. Yep. Um, so, you know, I, 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 you know, Andrew Leach doesn't think that kind of played a big role in this. They just cut it close and, and, and perhaps it... But, it, it, but it, does, it does raise a very important question because this is not all that rare an event. Um, and the last time something like this almost happened was in the summertime. And I, I think all of us across the country need to realize that in the summertime, we reach peak energy demand as well. So people in Alberta, people across the country need to ask themselves, what kind of capacity do we have to deal with surplus energy that we might be uh, generating from renewables? How do, what do we do with it? Where do we store it? Uh, should we set up batteries to store it? And, and what do we do about generating and selling it afterwards? I think these are all legitimate questions that have to be asked. And the, the legitimate question has to be asked of Ottawa as well. There is an energy transition happening across the country and around the world. But what are you going to do to make sure there is flexibility so that people can deal with these kinds of events? So, so Gary, just to, I want to just get you on this, because, uh, you know, it is conservative premiers, because uh, mm. there's only, like, a new Democrat and, and, and one liberal, right? And so it's, it's all conservative premiers for the most part, and that's where the fights are, because the, the consensus that was there when they signed the climate deal at the first minister's meeting, that went away as all the premiers kind of went away and, and were replaced. How do you make a move 
on this transition when the argument is so ideological, kind of, at least in what's being argued publicly, how do you even find compromise with people who just fundamentally don't agree on this? Because it seems, it seems impossible right now. Well, and I, I think what Daniel Smith and Scott Moe uh, were reflecting was the re- reflection of the feelings of a, of a lot of people uh, in in their home provinces, saying like, "Look, we need to have reliable sources of of energy," uh, and you know, leading that is is natural gas. In some ways, they were reflecting that back. Now, fortunately, Alberta does have twenty seven hundred megawatts of of new power coming online. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had the unfortunate situation where you had a couple power plants either down for repair or, or out of commission. That certainly didn't help the situation. Uh, but, you know, uh, in a, a situation like this, uh, you know, I think people are asking the question, well, you know, Ottawa wants to impose a new uh, clean uh, energy regulations on us. What is that going to mean for uh, our long-term ability to heat our homes and, and run our businesses uh, and so forth? So, uh, like I say, in some ways, I think this is simply a reflection of, of what people are feeling and what are hearing uh, that, you know, the Trudeau government wants to uh, move away from natural gas uh, and, 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 and there's a a bit of a response to that. So, Vandana, uh, on this, as the argument happens, you know, against the backdrop of energy pressures in Alberta about the future direction of the energy system in Canada with these oppositions, climate rebates are popping into people's bank accounts. I got my $244 for my family of four today. That's lovely. But is this... I mean, how does this color this larger political conversation? Is that rebate sizable enough, well-known enough, appreciated enough, effective enough to give the liberals a kind of lift in this fight that that they want? I think it's all in how you communicate it. I think uh, people have to pay attention to it. They have to see it. It also depends on the size. It's also dependent on your family and whatnot, as you mentioned. Um, I think it does help. I think, um, but where I feel like in Alberta, Saskatchewan, I feel like Daniel Smith and Scott Moore are playing to their base. I Mm -hmm. think anything that involves... And has an election this year. Exactly. And I think despite having an Ottawa-Alberta table that was created for that, despite also being open to, you know, regulations and consulting on them, besides, you know, Gilbo signaling flexibility and saying that we're not trying to get rid of gas plants. I think the problem is, as Gary said, the, the politics, of it, politics of it is so entrenched that I think a picture of Daniel Smith, like even smiling at Trudeau, wouldn't work well in her favor right now. Right. Um, I do think there are people in both those provinces, and I, when I saw the moratorium go on 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 renewable energy projects, like there are people in Alberta who who are unhappy with that. There are people mm-hmm. who are pushing back, and and you know, I was looking Twitter over the weekend, just people pushing back on you know, the reason there are people who are saying this is cut the Trudeau. And other people pushing back, Albertans themselves pushing back, saying, actually, no, it's not. The grid has not been upgraded in years. So I think there are people who will pay attention to that. But, you know, the problem is politically, the base that will believe, you know, Scott Moe and Daniel Smith will, you know, further outweigh the base that will really think through like that. Uh, you know, we need to think through a transition and working with the federal government will work in favor for Albertans. Uh, Brad, a quick last word from you and how you think, uh, you know, as Vanda said, if it's communicated well enough, are, are they communicating the rebate well enough? It isn't making enough of an oppression as people are worried about cost of living and, and carbon tax, which is the, the main attack uh, from Pierre Polyev. Do you think what people saw in their bank accounts today, yesterday, whenever they got it, uh, is, is going to help, help them at all? Well, you, you would hope so, right? It's better, you know, transferring all this money into individual bank accounts, uh, if it doesn't give you a bounce, then you're doing it all wrong because this is the whole, this whole <laughs> premise. The, the notion of rising costs for uh, things that, that have the consumer uh, carbon price on it 
it's, it's, you know, today is the day where the government's plan is supposed to have that payback from 364 days of criticism for higher gas uh, prices or home heating prices. Today is the day. If they don't, if they don't wring uh, a benefit out of it, then, then man, they're, they're handing back our money all the wrong way. Okay, we're going we're to leave it there. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.